I want something else to get me through this really terrible election. Oh, 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 oh. Sorry, I couldn't help myself because this week on Blind Politics, as we come to the end of this election and we are looking around us at the terrible choices that we have, it's very, very tempting for people to look around and say, I want something else. I want a third party option, some party that might possibly match up more with my values, or at least will convince the two major parties that they need to try to win my vote. Well, there are a couple of third party options. Most of them are not that promising. One of them might eventually be something down the road. All of them have some particular problems in common. And so on today's episode, we will break down the third party options and explain why it's so hard for third parties to succeed in American politics. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome podcast listeners to another educational episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. AJ Nolte, assistant professor of government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Remember, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. You can rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast provider, particularly iTunes is helpful. iTunes ratings help raise the profile of this podcast. So if you like what we're doing, give us a five-star rating on iTunes if you have that iTunes account. You can also find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I posted an AMA. We've got a couple of questions. I reposted the thread at the end of last week, right before our most recent episode went up. And I'm hoping to get that recorded before the election. So if, in fact, you have politics questions, pop them in that thread on Facebook and we will answer them. Politics questions will be answered. Non-politics questions may be answered. So today I wanted to talk about third parties because this is something that comes up whenever you start getting close to an election, whenever people start talking about an election, you will hear questions about why can't we have a third party? And I remember hearing these questions going all the way back to college. You will sometimes hear people say, what about the Greens? What about the Libertarians? Occasionally, what about the Constitution Party? Recently, there's been some noise about a new party that's emerging called the American Solidarity Party. And if you know anybody who's connected with the Solidarity Party, we are trying to get somebody from that party on the podcast, number one, because I think there's some interesting things to talk about there. Number two, because the chairman of that party is another blind guy who does politics. So I feel like as a blind politics podcast, having him on the podcast is on brand. So we're going to try to do that sometime in 2021 if we can. So let's talk about third parties, both in terms of general and specific issues. And by specific issues, I mean, I'm going to break down why I think the third parties that currently exist don't really have much of a chance of having an impact, not just on the 2020 election, but on American politics generally. And then we'll move on from that to say how I think there is actually room for a third party. There is a niche that could be filled. And without tipping my hand a little bit, I think the the probably the ASP, the American Solidarity Party, is one of the parties that's better positioned 
to do that in the long run, potentially. However, there are some things that you would really have to actually maybe learn some lessons on in terms of how, how political parties form and what to do with them and, and things like that. So let's talk about third parties in general, and then I'll talk specifically about the parties that are out there now. So one of the myths of American politics, and this is a myth that has been propounded by both people that are interested in third parties and a lot of academics like myself, is that the reason that you can't have a third party in the United States is because of our electoral system. So this is about to get really nerdy folks to so strap yourselves in because we're about to get seriously into the weeds. Because I think it is important for us to understand why third parties have such a difficult time in American politics. And first, that means explaining reasons that are not actually the correct explanation. So the common explanation is, well, it's our electoral system. And what people say is, well, it's because you have the first past the post system. So first past the post means that in most elections, the person who gets the most votes wins straight up. And so if you have, let's say you've got an election and there are four candidates running in that election and one of them gets 48% and another one gets 47, well, there's no, there's no prize for second place. It's winner take all. So the winner wins the, the race and it's first past the post, meaning that you have a situation in which the first person who gets uh, the, the majority there wins. Now, not every electoral system in the United States is precisely first past the post. There are some that have experimented with uh, some variations on that. However, that is the electoral system that exists for Congress. And that's the election, and of course, also for the presidency as well. And so that is the dominant system. And the argument that people make is that in a winner-take-all, first-past-the-post system, okay, you can't have third parties. It disincentivizes third parties and makes it more difficult for them. Well, the system that they want to replace that with is what's called a proportional representation system. And proportional representation is the idea that everybody votes, but you vote for a party, oftentimes, and seats are awarded in proportion to the vote that that party gets. Now, there are a number of problems with uh, proportional representation systems. First of all, as someone who's generally a little bit more conservative, I'm opposed to changing things for the sake of changing things, which is what this is. This is a change for the sake of change. It's claiming that it's going to be more representative. I think that's false, but we'll come back to that in a second. So don't change things if the system's not actually broken. So, and as I'll say in a second, I don't actually think the problem that third parties are having is the electoral system. I think that is an excuse rather than actually an explanation. Second point is proportional representation systems make countries dysfunctional. Okay, a large part of the reason why Israel has such a completely dysfunctional political system at times. The miracle of Israel's political system is that it works. And, you know, if you, can ask, if you were to ask Israelis, they would probably not disagree with this because they had four elections in the space of two years. And the reason for that largely is because of their proportional representation system. Another problem with that is so you, you have these crazy coalition politics that form. Imagine a Speaker of the House election in which you have a proportional representation system. Uh, you're going to have wacky coalitions trying to come together to get the speakership. And the other problem with that 
is that America has a presidential system. So you can't do anything in terms of PR for the presidency. So the presidency cannot be a proportional representation type system. You'd have to have a very, very different electoral system than we have. And as I've previously mentioned on this podcast, changing the electoral college is a bad idea. Okay. There are some systems that include elements of proportional representation and then elements of single member districts. But there's another basic problem with proportional representation, which is that proportional representation makes the representative less about the individual and more about the party. Okay. It's less about the individual. It's more about the party. What do I mean by that? Anytime you have proportional representation, by definition, you have the parties ranking their list of candidates in order of the party's preference. Okay. So you as a voter are voting for a political party, not for an individual. Now, it seems like we're kind of moving that way with Congress. People would say, well, that's the direction that we're moving with Congress. But I think there's a problem with that. See, our system is not based on the idea that you're going to be represented by a political party that agrees with you ideologically. Our system is based on the idea that you're going to be represented by someone in Congress who cares about your neighborhood, who cares about your local area. And so we should be voting less on party and more on the basis of who's going to be a representative of the community in which I live. Parties do not represent communities. Parties represent ideologies. And I don't think we need to change our system to make it more ideological rather than less. We, have, we don't have an, a problem of not enough ideology in American politics. I will also point out that the third parties that tend to want this are third parties that are on the ideological extremes of American politics because they know that's the only way that they're actually going to succeed in getting representation without actually kind of adjusting their politics. The last point on proportional representation. I know we spent a long time talking about this nerdy electoral system, but it's the most common argument that third parties make as to why they can't break through. And it's completely wrong. And so I need to trash it before I can explain why third parties actually fail. Okay. The most important thing to keep in mind is that in fact, in other first past the post systems with single member districts, there are multiple parties. Canada has three parties. Britain has three parties. India has a bajillion parties. Uh, and they've got that Westminster parliamentary system. Australia, New Zealand, and so on and so forth have multiple different parties. Now, those are parliamentary systems, and we have a presidential system. However, there's nothing that stops you from designing a party to compete in Congress without running for the presidency, except for the institutional factor that actually prevents third parties from succeeding in America. And that is the institutional factor that I would like to discuss next. And ironically enough, this is something that I suspect was put in place to help third parties, but in reality has completely squashed them. That is that the incentive for a third party in the United States is to run a presidential candidate first. In reality, what a third party should do is run a presidential candidate last. So why is the incentive to run a presidential candidate first? Well, because... If your party's candidate passes a certain threshold of the vote, I forget whether it's 5 or 10%, then you get matching funds. You get funds for your party from the government, from the Federal Election Commission. And that's the holy grail because then you can, in theory, use those funds to build out a party that's going to be competitive, that's going to get ballot access everywhere around the country, and so on and so forth. Okay, so there's an incentive for third parties to really focus on that idea 
of running for president first. The problem with that incentive is that it's backwards for how you should actually build a political party. Okay, so that is a problem. We've got to focus on presidential politics first, and that's the area where third parties should be focusing last. Why do I say that? Because the first thing that you need to do if you're going to start a third party is build a political party. Actually build a political party that has an effective organization that is capable of winning elections at the local level first, because once people win elections at the local level, it makes it more likely that you can win elections at the state level, which makes it possible to win elections at the national level. Okay, building a third party has to be trickle up, but the incentives institutionally are for third parties to focus trickle down. And that's backwards if you actually wanna be successful. The other thing that you have to do as a third party is you have to find an electoral niche first and figure out your ideology after that fact, okay? Ideology is not the first thing that you need to be working through as a third party, but third parties in America in particular are almost always ideology first, electoral strategy second, okay? If you want to get third parties spun up about anything, pretty much, they get spun up about nothing so much as the platform, okay? The party platform to third parties is the most important thing they do. It's the thing they fight the most about. It's the thing they demand absolute fidelity on. And it's the least important thing when it turns to actually winning elections. Okay, watch the way the Republicans and the Democrats handle their platforms. This year, one of the parties, I'm pretty sure it was the Democrats, didn't even have one. That should tell you how important it is. Pretty sure the Democrats didn't have a party platform. Pretty sure they're going to win the presidential election here in, in, in a week, barring you know some very unforeseen circumstances. I may look stupid for saying that in about a week if they don't, but it looks like the way they're going to go is that they're probably going to win the election without having a party platform, right? So not having a party platform clearly doesn't hurt you in terms of electoral strategy, but it's the thing that, part, that third parties focus the most on is sort of ideological purity. That is backwards. Okay, the purpose of a third party, the purpose of a political party is to win elections. All right, political parties exist for one purpose, and that purpose is to win elections. Now, hopefully you are advancing a specific and coherent set of beliefs as you are trying to win elections. But you have to be ideologically flexible enough to allow people to vote for you, even if they don't agree with you on everything. And that's where third parties mostly fail. It's the president, the focus on the presidency and the focus on ideological purity. That's the reason why we don't have a successful third party. We've had successful third parties in the past. One of them was the Republican party. Okay, the Republican party started as a third party. It was so successful that it replaced one of the two major political parties of its day. And the reason that it was so successful was because it identified an issue or set of issues that nobody else was talking about. It identified a constituency that went along with those issues, and it allowed for ideological flexibility rather than ideological purity on that issue. The issue was free soil, the idea that slavery should not be spread. The constituency was everybody who supported free labor in the North, basically in the North and the West. You know, they knew they weren't gonna win in the South because they were arguing against slavery, but there was a, a large constituency in the North and the West that was opposed to any spread of slavery 
because they thought it was a threat to the free labor system, which it was. And the ideological flexibility was the Republican Party didn't say you have to support immediate abolition or you can't support immediate abolition. They're willing to take the votes of abolitionists. They're willing to take the votes of people who just don't want slavery to spread. They're not demanding ideological rigidity. All they're saying is we're broadly supportive of this idea of free soil, of no more spreading of slavery into new territories, period, end of discussion. For whatever your reason is for that. If you're with us on that, then we're good. And that catapulted the Republicans eventually into, for a long time, being the single dominant political party in the United States. And then once that issue was gone, the Republicans adjusted. They adjusted to the realities in which they found themselves. Okay, so they were not wedded to an ideological straitjacket. They sort of emerged as the party of nationalism, as the party of sort of the, the new capitalist movement, as the party of American unity and of union and so on and so forth. And, th and that sort of becomes their ethos. Now, that type of ideological flexibility is something that if you're going to succeed as a third party, you have to have. Because people are going to agree with you on things for very different and disparate reasons. And you're going to need to emphasize those things in a different way in different contexts. So you have to allow enough flexibility for that. Which means that the least attitude or the least amount of energy possible should be spent on your platform. And your platform should be as vague and non-binding as possible. Obviously, you've got coherent ideological beliefs and principles, so you want to instantiate those in your platform. But you don't want to commit folks overly to ideological positions that might hurt them in a district where they're running. So your platform should state your general principles. It should state generally what you want to do. And the area where it should be the least specific, and this is something that every third party I've ever looked at does this wrong, is foreign policy. Every third party out there right now is wanting to run on the idea of a non-interventionist foreign policy. And they get really specific into the weeds about what that means. And here's the deal about foreign policy. Nobody cares about foreign policy as a voter, except if your foreign policy is bad and you look like you're incompetent and you don't know what you're talking about. Okay. So foreign policy as a party platform issue can only hurt you. It cannot help you because nobody's going to vote on the basis of foreign policy unless they refuse to vote for you because your foreign policy seems like you don't know what you're talking about and it seems bad and it seems overly ideologically out there. Okay. Yes. The American people have some strong non-interventionist instincts, but they also have strong pro-defense instincts. They have strong pro-military instincts. It's a very hard needle to thread, especially if you're a third party, especially if people don't trust you and they assume that if they don't know about you, they don't trust you and that you're probably a little bit kooky. So the last thing you want to do is reinforce that by giving way too much specificity about your foreign policy platform, okay? Because you're also probably going to run a risk of making more people mad the more you talk about it. Because the people that do actually care about foreign policy are very particular. And there's not a lot of them out there, but there's no need to alienate them unnecessarily, okay? So don't get into the weeds on stuff that don't actually motivate, on, on issues that don't actually motivate your voters, right? Be as general in your platform as you can get away with. Because the more general you are, the more flexibility you're giving candidates that want to run on the standard of and the banner of your party.
Okay, so that's how you succeed as a third party. The other thing you have to do is you have to identify an underserved ideological constituency that is somewhat compatible with your particular ideological approach. Okay, I would say the challenge there is that because the two parties are so broad, they are kind of big tent parties, it can be a little bit hard to identify those constituencies right off the bat. So you have to start, dig, you have to really dig into the weeds. You need to get deep into analytically into opinion polling and surveys and things like that. And you need to find out where those constituencies are that feel like they're underrepresented, that are inclined to agree with you ideologically. And then you have to figure out how to identify and target those constituencies. And a large part of that is going to be finding people who are respected in that particular area and can run local campaigns based on your issues in those constituencies. I mean, this is kind of basic party building stuff, but it's something that I haven't seen any of the third parties actually do effectively in the United States. And so the reason they're not effective is because we know how to build a political party and they're not doing the things that you need to do to build a political party. Now, let's break down three of the major third parties that you may have heard about in this election. The Greens, the Libertarians, and then the American Solidarity Party. We'll start with the Greens. The Greens are a party that positions themselves to the left of the Democrats. And the Greens in America in particular are both an environmentalist party and a, largely a socialist party. Okay, so that's the, the stigma that's kind of been part of their DNA is that they are to the left of the Democrats on virtually every issue, but with a special focus on the environment. Okay, this is actually not the positioning that if you're going to be a Green Party, that you want to be in. Because if you want to compare them to other green parties, the green parties that are the most effective in um, internationally are um, parties that focus on environmental issues. And then other than that, their platform is sort of upscale technocratic. Because the reality is that the types of constituencies that are going to care the most about environmental issues tend to be constituencies where folks are a little bit wealthier. They're a little bit uh, middle to upper class. Um, they are maybe a little bit more fiscally conservative on some issues, but they care about the environment. That's your constituency if you're a Green Party in most Western industrialized democracies. Your constituency is not, you know, trying to be more socialist than whatever party of the left exists in your country. Okay, so Green Parties are probably never going to be the types of parties that win the presidency. But what you can be is a party that wins a couple of congressional seats, that is a kingmaker on your particular issue, and you can provide, you know, sort of supply agreements and things like that to get certain things passed in exchange for your priorities. Okay, so the, the high watermark for a Green Party is actually to be a really effective single issue party that is flexible on other things, but particularly has more of an upscale sort of technocratic focus on other issues. And then is laser focused on the environment. You're trying to win a couple of seats. By the way, when I say a couple of seats, I mean, you're probably targeting let's just be realistic here. You're probably targeting a lot of Silicon Valley area seats, some other upscale seats that are represented by Democrats, okay, currently. And the way you want to target those seats is by running candidates who are to the right of the Democrats on most issues slightly. Not a lot, because these are, if there was a, a gap really far to the right on most issues, they'd actually be electing Republicans, but they're probably not, right? So you want to be a little bit more fiscally conservative than the Democrats. You could be socially, it doesn't matter. Probably you want to be about where the Democrats are um, 
you know, you, again, look at the look at the demographics there, and, and then also look at your candidate. But you want to be a little bit to the right of the Democrats on fiscal issues, but to the left of the Democrats on economic issues or on environmental issues. And that's your approach to winning seats as a Green Party. And it's the kind of thing that is very difficult to do, but you're never probably going to be a major party. That is not the way the Green Party in the United States runs. It runs as sort of an eco-socialist party, and that limits your appeal. It limits your appeal significantly. Um, you might pick up a couple voters from folks that are were Bernie supporters that are dissatisfied, uh, or from folks who are dissatisfied because Biden is not running hard enough on the Green New Deal and has, has been wishy-washing on fracking. But you're, that's not really enough to make you a nationally relevant party. It's enough to play spoiler in a couple of states. It's enough to make the Democrats really hate you. It's not enough to be effective. Okay. And so that's the Green Party. I don't see the Green Party being a really relevant force in American politics anytime soon. I could see the Green Party positioning themselves to become a second party in places in parts of, or places like the West Coast, parts of Oregon, parts of Washington, parts of California. But to do that, they'd have to kind of position themselves the way I just described, as a little bit more of an upscale, technocratic, slightly more fiscally conservative party that is, um, you know, hardcore on environmental issues. I think that's an issue mix that wins you some voters in parts of the of the Pacific West and Pacific Northwest. Um, and it makes you a relevant regional party, and maybe you can get a couple of congressional seats um, and start to, to push for your issues at a national level. That seems doable for the Greens. Beyond that, I'm not really seeing it at this point. And it would, you know, maybe in a decade, things change on that, but I don't, I don't really see them having much of a threshold. Maybe, maybe they could get sort of to, to that 5% support, 10% support nationwide at max, if they do everything right. Okay, second party I want to talk about is the Libertarians. Oh, the Libertarians. The Libertarian Party is distinctive enough, ideologically, that you can say that they do have a constituency. Uh, and they are a, a less government party across the board. They want less government involvement in social issues. They want smaller government on fiscal issues. They are to the left on foreign policy. They're hardcore non-interventionists on foreign policy. Uh, they want drug legalization and so on and so forth, right? So th there, there's an ideological consistency there. The problem with libertarians is they're probably a little bit too ideologically consistent. And this goes back to sort of what I, what I mentioned before. Um, where you want to be if you have that sort of libertarian ideological mix is in that sort of space that Gary Johnson tried and failed to occupy in 2016, a sort of fiscally conservative, socially liberal. I think that's your best bet from a libertarian perspective because you're going to have voters that are increasingly dissatisfied there. The problem is fiscally conservative, socially liberal voters are not foreign policy non-interventionists. They're not big time interventionists. They're not some you know folks who want to get involved everywhere, but they want to see a strong defense. They want to see the United States doing what it needs to do to keep, you know, the sea lanes open and keep trade going, which involves actually U.S. commitments abroad. Uh, they want a muscular foreign policy because muscular foreign policy from that perspective is, is good for fiscal conservatism. Okay. Think like Rudy Giuliani, 2008. That's about where these folks are, ideologically speaking. Um, that's not where the libertarians are. 
And so foreign policy is the biggest impediment for the libertarians in getting into that actual constituency. The other impediment is that you have to run candidates that seem credible, okay? Fiscally conservative, socially liberal voters, first of all, there aren't a lot of them. But second of all, they tend to be a group that values competence highly. So you've got to come across as somebody who actually would get into a position to run the country and you know how to run the country, right? That's really important to these types of folks. These are your competence voters. They like to think of themselves as moderate. The other thing is fiscal conservative social liberals can be a little bit of fool's gold because when they say fiscally conservative, they don't always mean it. They mean they like the idea of spending cuts in theory. They like the idea of tax cuts in theory. But when you get to cases, they don't care about it quite as much as, as you would think they do. And oftentimes the fiscal conservatism is much more positional than it is an actual ideological current. Okay, so it's a very difficult constituency to be in. It is probably the most natural area of growth for the Libertarian Party, but there are some challenges. As they are currently, I think the Libertarians probably, again, tap out at 5%. If you could really get into hardcore that constituency I just described, you could get to maybe 10, maybe 15 in certain areas. You could probably win a couple of governorships. You could possibly win some house races. Uh, you know, be competitive in parts of New England, uh, be competitive in other sort of up upscale areas. Beyond that, though, you're tapped. It's not, there, there aren't enough people in that ideological mix. Now, what there is in that ideological area is a lot of money. This is one of the challenges for third parties, is that there, there are really two unrepresented constituencies. One has not a lot of voters, but has a majority of money. And that's this fiscally conservative, socially liberal group. It tends to be much more representative of elites, tends to be much more representative of, of folks that are willing to slap down a lot of money on uh, political causes. And so you're going to get funding, but you're tapped out in terms of voters after a certain point. And so again, you're looking to maybe be a pressure party. You're looking to be a party that has some representation in Congress, but is pushing your issue. Now, you could very easily see some overlap, and this is kind of a, a weird way of putting it because on, a, on most issues, they are diametrically opposed. But if you look at that ideal constituency that I described, you could see a successful party absorbing both the Libertarians and the Greens. What do I mean by that? You know, a party that's fiscally conservative, socially liberal, very passionate about environmental issues, moderate on foreign policy. Okay, that's a party that competes very effectively in those constituencies, in that, those overlapping constituencies where the Libertarians and the Greens have reason, room to grow. That party doesn't exist. That's the kind of political party that could probably pull 15% of the vote and win in certain constituencies. Okay, so that is a way in which you could sort of combine what the Libertarians are trying to do, combine what the Greens are trying to do, pull them in a little bit. It's not ideologically that coherent. Libertarians are screaming their heads off right now because what the Greens want to do on the environment and the environmental issue is not at all libertarian. It is not ideologically consistent. Okay, most voters are not ideologically coherent. And that's the challenge that third parties have. Most voters are not ideologically coherent. And so if you want to appeal to them, you have to limit your own level of ideological coherence. So that's a challenge then that you have for the Libertarians and the Greens. The smartest thing for them to do would be to combine, take the Libertarians to a certain extent on economics and on social issues, take the Greens on the environment, ditch everybody, both of your stuff on foreign policy because it's getting you nowhere, and talk about vague platitudes about, you know, a peaceful but muscular foreign policy and try to keep it super vague. <laughs> you 
You know, if you want to use some fancy words, throw some stuff out there about offshore offshore balancing, which is a, a way of saying sort of, you know, have the ability to balance, to prevent anybody from gaining hegemonic control over, over Europe and Asia. But on the other hand, like don't, don't intervene too much. Right. Um, that sounds smart. It sounds like, you know, what you're talking about. You can come up with a grand strategy based on that, that again, looks competent. It's going to appeal to those more technocratic voters, and that's your base. If you're in this type of, of party, that's your base, right? So that's one part type of third party that could emerge. But again, I think that's probably capped out about 15%. Now, 15% for a third party is awesome. You're doing really well at that point. And you can probably have some influence in terms of actually like shaping outcomes in Congress. Because if you get 15 to 20% of the congressional seats, it's hard for anybody to be speaker without you. But... You're not winning the presidency anytime soon. You're not setting the agenda anytime soon. You're having to work with the parties to move things in your direction. Okay, so the last third party I want to talk about is the American Solidarity Party. And the American Solidarity Party is a Christian Democratic Party. Now, this doesn't mean that it's a party of American capital D Democrats who are Christians. It is in the sort of Christian Democratic tradition. This tradition was formed by Roman Catholic and Calvinist thinkers. So Roman Catholics trying to apply uh, Catholic social teaching and Calvinists trying to apply their own social teaching to politics. So you've got two of the more uh, rigorous types of social teaching in terms of Christianity and politics. And what they came up with was something that was fiscally, I would say, moderate, a little bit center left by American standards, a little bit center right by European standards, socially conservative, and very much open to the idea of participation of the faith sector in all levels of politics. And so there are ideas like subsidiarity, the idea that things should be done at the local level first where possible. There's a real skepticism of both corporate and governmental power uh, and a desire to sort of balance them. There's support for a lot of civil society organizations like trade unions, but also things like churches uh, and faith-based organizations. And so that's kind of the tradition that the American Solidarity Party is in. The name is also partially drawn from Solidarity, which was a movement of resistance to the communists in Poland, largely motivated by trade unions, among others. So you can kind of see where, where they might be, and you can see where there would be a basket of voters potentially interested in what the American Solidarity Party is selling. Because as I mentioned previously, I think the most underrepresented constituency in America is probably fiscally moderate to, to populist and socially conservative. There's a lot of African-American voters. There's a lot of Hispanic voters. There's a lot of sort of downscale white, currently Trump voters that are in that basket. Okay, and so you can see how there would be a path for and room for a party that's kind of in that space to grow. Okay, the challenge for the American Solidarity Party as with all third parties, is going to be actually taking the mountain to Muhammad rather than trying to make Muhammad come to the mountain. And what I mean by that is, look, you have a constituency, you've got a number of constituencies that could very easily be brought in. The way to bring them in, though, is what I described earlier. You want to be vague in your party platform. You want to be kind of in the, in the space that's roughly where they want to be. You want to be as specific as you need to for the constituencies that you're trying to appeal to, but not more specific than you need to on issues that are not really motivating their vote. But the main thing is you have to actually build the relationships and show up and build the party. 
which means you're going to have to recruit candidates. You're going to have to recruit party organizers. You're going to have to actually build an infrastructure in the areas where there are potential constituencies among Hispanic voters, among African-American voters, among sort of downscale conservative white voters who are more economically populist, but socially conservative. Those folks are out there, but you're going to have to go get them. You can't expect them to come to you or to find you. And you can't get caught up in internecine squabbles over the party platform. One of the problems that I've seen already with Solidarity, and I've been watching the party kind of on and off, um, and I, I checked them out again recently, is there's way, way too much focus on the platform. It's not on their main website, which is good. But when you actually look up their platform, you can tell that there's a lot of specificity that's gone into it. And then a lot of people have put forward proposals and have really been passionate about, we have to get these specific issues instantiated in these specific ways in the party platform. That's not how you grow the party. Party platforms are where third parties go to die. Spend as little time on that as you possibly can. Or alternatively, if you've got people that are really ideological, get them focused on the platform, and that's fine, and they can have their platform debates, but you actually need people that are out there like building the party and organizing the party and bringing people in. Because eventually, then those people you bring in are going to look at the platform, say this is a little bit cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and go in and fix it. right? But you have to grow the party first and then solidify the platform second. There is an order that you do these things. You can't start from a clear, coherent, consistent ideological program and then develop a third party out of that. You can have general ideological instincts. And I actually think Christian democracy, pretty good ideological instincts. I think most of the underlying values and principles that are spelled out in the American Solidarity Party, if you flush it out by building a good organization, you could build something that would compete with the Democrats and the Republicans. You could build something that could very quickly become the second party in both deep red and deep blue areas. You become the second party in minority communities. You become the second party in hardcore white red states, you know, among, among sort of white Republicans. Because, you know, you find that the Republicans that are never going to vote for Democrats, where the Democratic Party is, is a memory, a, a rapidly fading memory. And then you find the minority communities where they're never going to vote for Republicans. And those are your, your constituencies. The other advantage to that is you're building in an area that's not a swingy area. So the problem with the fiscal conservative social liberal, which I described before, is most of your voters live in swing districts because those are the identified swing voters. The American Solidarity Party, you're a little bit more under the radar because most of your voters are disaffected. They're the kind of people who would say, nobody in politics really represents me, who are lower propensity voters perhaps, or folks who are you know, voting for one party, but they're not happy about it because they don't really fit them, right? So you can work around the margins without necessarily raising a lot of red flags among those parties. The Greens and Libertarians are going to have a harder time because they're already seen as spoilers. So your best bet from that American solidarity perspective is to work in deep red and deep blue areas to position yourselves as the second party there. Because once you're a viable second party in parts of the country and you actually start winning elections in some of those areas, then you really are a viable third party. Because if you're the second party in deep red and deep blue areas, eventually you can kind of move from the outside in and you can start to become more competitive in, in swing states and swing areas. So that's how I would build it. And I think it's doable, but you have to have, you have to keep the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing, if you're a third party is winning elections, putting yourself in a position to get people elected first to local office, then hopefully statewide. And the presidency, I frankly wouldn't even run a presidential candidate if I were a third party until my party had existed for at least a decade. 
because it's just it's not a good use of your resources. There, there are some ways it can be useful if you're trying to build sort of ballot access campaigns, but I would actually run my ballot access campaigns in off years, in off year local elections and special elections and things like that, where you have maybe more of a chance of breaking through and getting certain percentage of the votes. The other thing that I would push for if I were like really passionate about trying to make third party happen is rather than pushing for a change to the electoral system, which they all say they want that, change a change for the way matching funds are allocated to third parties. So that it's not about percentage of votes in presidential elections, but it's about number of political offices won to include state and local office. Okay, so a formula that looks looks more like you have won X number of offices in Y number of states. And, you know, even if that threshold starts out pretty high, if that's the way funds are being allocated, then there's an opening and it changes the incentive for third parties into something that's actually much more sustainable in the long run. Because your goal is to get to the point where you are a sustainable political party that has a real chance at winning elections. Because again, the purpose of a political party is not to, and it go, kind of goes, this kind of goes back to what I said last week about the difference between persuasion and self-expression. Okay. The purpose of a political party is not to have a party that agrees 100% with your values. Uh, and it says something about you as a person. The purpose of a political party is to win elections and winning elections means persuading people that don't fully agree with you or that don't even know that you exist. And so if you have that persuasion focus, you need to focus on winning elections. Now you need to be clear on what you believe, but not too clear and, and not making your party into an ideological straitjacket. So that is the key for political parties to be successful, for third parties to be successful. None of them are in that place in 2020. Solidarity has ballot access in eight states. They've right in, in a couple more. They're not going to probably break the 2% threshold in this presidential election. That's not happening. What they could do if they're thinking for the long term is actually start being competitive in some state legislative races in 2021, 2022, maybe running candidates in deep red or deep blue congressional seats that have the right profile. Okay, so deep red seats where you have conservative Republican candidates running unopposed. Deep blue seats where you have minority uh, Democratic candidates running unopposed or virtually unopposed. You want to get on the ballot in those particular places, run candidates, see if you can get 20, 30% of the vote. You're not going to win necessarily in 2022, but see if you can, if you can get enough of the vote that the major party in that particular district is willing to say, yeah, you know what? These, these people are pulling in some new voters. That's a good thing. Maybe we can do a fusion. Maybe we could do a hybrid uh, fusion candidacy so that we can maintain our, our ballot position. Maybe they'll help, you know, you can do co-endorsements and things like that. That's the other thing is if you've got somebody who's kind of with you in one of the major political parties, give them your ballot line and you have ballot access, give them your ballot line as well. Uh, fusion voting is not common in the United States, but it potentially could be. And it's, there's nothing, there's no law that I'm aware of against it in most states. So a co-endorsement fusion voting strategy could work in those types of, of contested races. And you could see some, some real advantages to that, to either the Republican party where it's weak or the Democratic party where, where it's weak, because sometimes the brand is very toxic and the candidates are going to want to be able to brand themselves with something else. So there are strategies that you could pursue to make a third party relevant in the long run. None of that's going to help in 2020. Okay. Joe Biden or Donald Trump is going to win. And 
So, you know, if you want to vote for one of these third parties, keep in mind that what you're doing is you're giving them a chance to get matching funds or get a ballot access or get, you know, any, any of these types of things, but you're not going to have an impact on the presidential election. You're not going to impact who wins. And that may not matter. Maybe you're winning, you're, you're voting in a state where you kind of know who's going to win it already. And so as a result of that, you can't stand either of them. You'd rather cast a protest vote. I get that. I get that. Pick your protest vote candidate well, because you are then contributing to say, I want this party to have greater representation and a greater voice in American politics. And so for the, Liber for the Greens, it's Howie Hawkins. For the Libertarians, it's Joe Jorgensen. For, Constitu or for the Solidarity Party, it's a guy named Brian Carroll, uh, who is now a write-in, as I understand it, in Virginia. And so if that's the way you want to go, you know, you're in a state where you know one side is clearly going to win and you want to cast your vote to give that party that you support a bigger voice in American politics as sort of a protest vote. Okay, I get that. Just keep in mind that it's not affecting the outcome of the election. It's not going to affect who the next president is. Your vote's not going to change whether Trump or Biden wins if you're voting for a third party candidate in all likelihood. If you are in a swing state, and you are trying to decide Trump, Biden, or third party, keep in mind that your vote really does have an impact. Okay, because if you vote for one of those, if you're trying to decide between one of those third parties and the Republican or the Democratic candidate, then your vote matters because your vote makes it less likely that your second choice candidate is actually going to win that state. And winning the state matters from an electoral votes perspective. So that's the way that I would calculate with a third party. If you know the direction your state's going to go and you want to cast a protest vote, I would say there's very little cost. There's very little disincentive to doing that in this election. If you don't like either of the two candidates, just keep in mind that you're then saying, I want, I support these people having a bigger voice in politics. If you're in a contested state, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, guys, Virginia's probably not that close. Biden's probably going to win Virginia by somewhere between eight and 10 points. I uh, would not put Virginia in a competitive pile in 2016. And you can see that based on the fact that Trump isn't really competing here very much. But, you know, Arizona, maybe Texas, Nevada, Florida for sure, Georgia, you're in one of those states. Your vote matters. And, and you're, if you do vote for a, a, a third party candidate, you're making it less likely that your second choice candidate does not win. That if you have a slight preference between the two candidates, you're making it less likely that whoever you slightly prefer is, is actually going to win your state. If you don't really have a slight preference, yeah, then you might as well vote protest. But, you know, it does, it does make a difference where you live. Okay, so I'm not going to tell everybody throw, uh, third party votes throwing your vote away. Because, frankly, if you live in a state that's not competitive, there's really no disincentive to throw, throwing your vote away in a presidential election. We vote by state. There's no such thing as a national popular vote. And so the only thing that you're doing with your presidential vote in that case, in a non-competitive state, is um, you're giving the person you voted for sort of a talking point that says we did you know, pretty well in the popular vote. So you know, it, it's, it's a cost-benefit thing. And your vote... Does, is is weighted slightly differently if you're in a more swingy state than if you're in a state that's hard red or hard blue. And yes, I know this is an argument for people to get rid of the electoral college, but the reality is 
it's not really going to change that much if there's no electoral college because yeah then every individual vote matters but the reality is it's not going to change the way people campaign such that if you're if you're a partisan of one party living in a deep uh deeply strong area for the other party you're probably not going to see a lot of attention from from that campaign to try to harvest your vote even if the electoral college is eliminated and again we go back to what i said at the beginning don't change things just for the sake of changing things okay so i think the issues are less institutional and more the way third parties have organized have behaved themselves and have tried to compete and that's the reason they have not been successful so if you want something else if you want a third party that's going to be more representative of your actual views and that's going to compete effectively for votes then you want some of these third parties to start figuring it out and start figuring out how to actually effectively compete and campaign and try to win elections rather than going for ideological purity complaining about the electoral system and fruitlessly chasing that five percent of the presidential vote so that they can try to get matching funds with which they would not necessarily probably know how to actually build a coherent successful party organization nationwide in any case so that's going to be a wrap for this episode i think hopefully we'll have enough questions that we can do an ama before the election if we don't then the next thing that you're going to hear from blind politics will be the post-election episode that may or may not come the day after it might come like thursday or friday i am probably going to be doing stuff on election night and then and then it looks like i'm going to be doing something on election morning and by election morning i mean like four o'clock in the morning here so if you're in the hampton roads area it looks like i'm going to be on 13 news now the, the morning after the election starting at four I don't, i'm going i don't know how long i'm not expecting any of you my faithful listeners to actually like watch that but just so you know that's a thing that's probably gonna happen uh, if you are up that early yeah it's, that's happening so i can't promise that my election update is going to actually come out the day after or even be recorded the day after that being said i can't promise that we're actually going to know the outcome the day after if in fact the vote by mail numbers are as huge as we're talking about we could be looking at weeks before we know the outcome in most races including the presidential because i don't think that either side is going to be willing to to concede until after mail-in votes are counted and I suspect things are going to look a lot better for Trump based on election day than they are when the mail-in votes are, uh, votes are counted. So Trump is probably not conceding on election night unless he's getting crushed in the, in the election day vote. And also the, the numbers are looking really bad vote, vote by mail because, um, you know, the, the high numbers of Democrats that voted by mail, there's, there's a much higher percentage from what we can tell of people that have voted Democrat in the past that have recorded, requested vote by mail in a lot of these states. So it's going to be a while. Uh, we probably won't know the outcome in many of these races the day after, would be my guess. So it's going to be a bumpy ride. It's going to be wild. It's going to be 2020, in other words. So strap yourself in. And we'll be along for the ride here at Blind Politics. So come back to us for updates on all of the wacky fun craziness as it moves toward somebody eventually becoming the next president. And we will cover all of that for you here at Blind Politics. So for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.